Welcome to the Dunwoody Community Church Podcast. We are so glad you have chosen to listen in to one of our Sunday services, and we hope that you will be blessed by today's message. For more information about Dunwoody Community Church, please visit us at dunwoodychurch.org. That's dunwoodychurch.org. Welcome to the second in our little mini-series of boys in the Bible rather than bad boys in the Bible. If you remember, we've, we're going back to some of the stories we looked at back during Lent and saying, well, you know, these are the, the bad examples, but what, what are the good examples? How, how could this have been handled better? What, what do we see that's useful? So today, we're going to go back to the story of King Saul. If you remember, that's back in 1 Samuel 15, where Saul is confronted with his own sin. And do you remember how he responds When he gets confronted with the fact that he's not obeyed God, he denies it. He tries to deflect it. Oh, no, it's it's the soldiers who did. I obeyed. The soldiers didn't obey. He he just tries to excuse it. Well, okay, I sort of did that, but really it's these guys' fault over here. They made me do it. He he tries to minimize it. He tries to ignore it. Well, you know, just come back with me and worship. It'll be okay. We, We can take care of this. But he never ends up acknowledging, really, he never ends up doing what God told him to do. Today, we're going to look at a very similar story, but with King David, the king that followed Saul. So turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 21. This is a story about how David also gets confronted with his sin, and as we'll see, he responds 180 degrees from Saul. He is the anti-Saul. His response is outstanding compared to King Saul's response. It was so bad. Now, I need to make just a quick little um, you know, personal safety adjustment announcement here. This is the last one we're going to do. I'm not going to try and go back and do all of the ones we did for Lent. This is the last in our little mini boys from the Bible series. Next week, we're going to start back into 1 Corinthians. I don't know if you remember, but before the boys, bad boys of the Bible, in, uh, back in the winter, we did the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians. And so we're going to jump back into that. We're going to start next week in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We won't do the whole rest of the book, but we'll do a section of it over the next couple months. Now, we're a community church, we're a family church. I strive to keep sermons PG at the absolute most so that the whole family can enjoy them. Um, But 1 Corinthians 5, the topic is not a PG topic. So if you usually watch this with your kids, then can I encourage you to go read 1 Corinthians 5 and see if you're okay with them watching that or or maybe preview it ahead of time because it's an R-rated subject and so... It's the Bible. We're going to deal with it. We're going to talk about it. So just a public service announcement there to to take a look at 1 Corinthians 5 or maybe preview the video if you're going to watch it with your kids first. All right, so 1 Chronicles chapter 21. This is King David, how he responds to his sin. So read along with me. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the troops, go and count the Israelites from Beersheba to Dan, then report back to me so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied, may the Lord multiply his troops a hundred times over. My Lord, the king, are they not all the Lord's subjects? Why does the Lord want to do this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? The king's word, however, overruled Joab. So Joab left and went throughout Israel and then came back to Jerusalem. Joab reported the number of the fighting men to David. In all Israel, there were 1,100,000 men who could handle a sword, including 470,000 in Judah. But Joab did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering because the king's command was repulsive to him. This command was also evil in the sight of the Lord, so he punished Israel. Then David said to God, I have sinned greatly by doing this. Now I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. 
The Lord said to Gad, David's seer, go and tell David, this is what the Lord said. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, this is what the Lord says. Take your choice. Three years of famine, three months of being swept away before your enemies with their swords overtaking you, or three days of the sword of the Lord, days of plague in the land with the angel of the Lord ravaging every part of Israel. Now then, decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is very great, but do not let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel and 70,000 men of Israel fell dead. And God sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem. But as the angel was doing so, the Lord saw it and relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was destroying the people, enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then standing at the threshing floor of Arauna, the Jebusite. David looked up and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with a drawn sword in his hand extending over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell face down. David said to God, was it not I who ordered the fighting men to be counted? I, the shepherd, have sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Lord, my God, let your hand fall on me and my family, but do not let this plague remain on your people. Then the angel of the Lord ordered Gad to tell David to go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arauna, the Jebusite. So David went up in obedience to the word that Gad had spoken in the name of the Lord. While Arauna was threshing wheat, he turned and he saw the angel. His four sons who were with him hid himself. Then David approached, and when Arauna looked and saw them, he left the threshing floor and bowed down before David with his face to the ground. David said to him, let me have the sight of your threshing floor so that I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Sell it to me at the full price. Arauna said to David, take it. Let my Lord the king do whatever pleases him. Look, I will give the oxen for the burnt offering, the the threshing sledges for the wood and the wheat for the grain offering. I, I give all this. But King David replied to Arauna, no, no, I insist on paying full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours or sacrifice a burnt offering that costs me nothing. So David paid Arauna 600 shekels of gold for the site. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. He called on the Lord and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of burnt offerings. Then the Lord spoke to the angel and he put his sword back in its sheath. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Arauna, the Jebusite, he offered sacrifices there. The tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness, and the altar of burnt offerings were at that time on the high place in Gibeon. But David could not go to it to inquire of the Lord because he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. So we don't know exactly when in David's life this story happens. It's sometime in the second half of his kingship. So he's probably somewhere in his 50s or something like that. David rules from when he's 30 to when he's 70. This is taking place in the second half. And do you notice how the story begins? Satan rose up against Israel and incited David. Now, hang on to that. We'll come back to that in a minute. What he incites David to do is to count the fighting men. Now, you know, he takes a census, which, of course, we do that in our country every 10 years. It's, it's very common. But for them, it was forbidden. Now, interestingly enough, it's not forbidden in the law. There's not a law of Moses that says, don't count the fighting men, but clearly they knew it was wrong. It's not until the time of the prophets in Hosea, when Hosea will say to the people, and he's hundreds of years after David, he'll say, well, you cannot count the people of Israel. You're not allowed to do that. But they clearly know it's wrong because Joab, which is David's general, the, the guy over David's army, Joab says, oh my gosh, don't do that. Now, 
I'm going to take a slight detour here. You know, I'm always encouraging you to read your Bibles, to have some sort of plan that takes you through Scripture. And this story is a great example of why that's so important. If you have been reading through the Bible, I've told you, read three chapters a day. Every day you'll read the whole Bible in a year. If you've read through the Bible a few times, the name Joab should be very familiar to you. He's a major character in 1 Chronicles. He's a major character in 2 Samuel, which is sort of covering a lot of the same, the same time frame. And if you remember anything about Joab, you'll probably remember he's a bad man. He's a really bad man. He's so bad, a couple times, David fires him and brings another guy in to be his general. And Joab's response to that is to go find the new guy, murder him, and take back his old position. And David lets him do it. And we don't know why. They're actually related. Maybe it's a family thing. Maybe he's afraid the army will find Joab. We don't know. But one of David's last words in his life that he says to his son Solomon, right before David dies and Solomon takes over, his command to Solomon is, kill Joab. Don't let Joab die of old age. He must pay for his crimes. Like David wouldn't do it. He puts it on his son. Joab is a bad man. If you know that, if you've been reading, if you've read the stories, when Joab says to David, oh my gosh, don't do that, like that just should send alarm bells going off in your brain. If one of the really evil characters in David's life is warning him this is a terrible idea, this must be a really, really bad idea. You know, this is like you're watching one of those scary movies and, you know, their kids are in the spooky house and one of them's disappeared and one kid turns to the other and says, let's split up. We'll find Casey quicker that way, right? And that's just, everything's going off in your head. Like you're yelling at the TV screen, no, don't split up because you've seen these stories. You know what happens when people split up. That's what should be happening when you hear Joab say, oh my gosh, my Lord, the King, don't do that. That's a terrible idea. Alarm bells should be going off. Joab thinks this is such a terrible idea that he won't even count everyone, even though that's his command. He leaves out the Benjaminites. He leaves out the Israelites because they don't fight. But Benjamin does, but he just leaves them out. He doesn't want to do what, what David has said. And sure enough, we find out in the very next verse, in verse 7, the command was also evil in the sight of the Lord. And so he punished Israel. And now, now we get to see the difference between David and Saul. Remember, again, we said, how did Saul respond to his sin? Right? He denied it. He minimized it. He excused it. He deflected it. He ignored it. Did anything but acknowledge it and try and make it right. Notice what David did. Very first thing, very next verse. Verse eight, David said to God, I have sinned greatly by doing this. Now I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I've done a very foolish thing. David immediately admits it. He immediately acknowledges it. He immediately comes to God and asks for forgiveness. Now, we know from the scriptures that the answer to the question of, Lord, will you forgive me, is always yes. But here we see one of those terrible, terrible truths of the scriptures. We want to believe that if we ask for forgiveness, then everything's okay. There are no consequences we want to say, well, well, I said I'm sorry. Isn't that enough? Yes, there's forgiveness, but that doesn't mean there are no consequences. I heard a writer explain it this way. He said, imagine you, you take a piece of wood, hammer a bunch of nails in that piece of wood. The nails are like sin. 
So now you've got, the wood is a person in your life, and here's all the nails, the sin that you've committed. So get the sin out. Get rid of it. Take your little hammer and pry out all the nails. Now the nails are gone. The sin is gone. There's no sin left. But there are still holes. The nails made holes, and sin makes holes. Sometimes God in his mercy, when he forgives the sin, he heals the holes, but he does not promise that. He promises to forgive the sin. He does not promise to do away with the consequences. And we see it right here. There are consequences. God comes to David and says, there will be consequences for your sin. You can have three, days of, three, three years of nature being against you, three months of people being against you, or three days of me being against you. And David chooses to have God against him because he says God is merciful. Nature and people, no, not so much. But the Lord, David said, is merciful. And so it happens just like God said, there's a plague and 70,000 people die. Think about that number, 70,000. We are Dunwoody Community Church. There are nowhere near 70,000 people in this city. This is like everyone in our city dying and then dying again. This is a huge number of people because of David's sin, because here's another one of those terrible truths that we don't want to believe. That that Satan, who starts all this, lies to us and says, well, sure, even if it's wrong, you're not hurting anyone. Even if something happens, the only person that this concerns is you. No, never. Sin destroys everything it gets its hands on. Now, I don't understand. You know, we've talked about God's justice and God's mercy at Easter. I don't understand how God's justice and David's sin and all these things work together because God is the one executing justice on David. God is just. He's completely, perfectly, 100% just. He's not gonna let anything slide. Though David has asked for forgiveness, there are still consequences. There is still justice to be done. And we want to believe the lie that, oh, if there's a problem, it's just on me. It doesn't hurt anyone else. Do you notice what it says in verse one? Satan rose up against Israel and incited David. Satan goes after the leader because by getting the leader to sin, he can harm everyone around him. Gentlemen, are you listening to this? This is important. If you are a husband, if you are a father, and Satan wants to get at your family, he will come at you. He will incite you to do what is wrong because then the consequences can fall on everyone around you, under you, beside you. We love the lie that no one else will be hurt, but it is most assuredly a lie. And you see it happen right here. 70,000 people die because of what David did. God's justice falls on him. For three days, there is the plague. But did you notice that David was right? David said, I want to fall into the hands of the Lord because he is merciful. As the angel of the Lord is headed for Jerusalem, the most populous, the biggest city in Israel, God says, stop. God says, no. He he stays justice. Now, why? How, how can he do that? I mean, if he's perfectly just and he has to execute justice, how does he suddenly say, stop? Well, we know. I don't think they knew, but we have the rest of the story. He's not stopping justice. He's just delaying it. He's pushing justice off until later. 
as we'll see in a minute, he's pushing justice off until Jesus. Justice is stopped. It's pushed forward. And here again, we get to see how David is nothing like King Saul. We get to see David shine. What does David say to God when these things happen in verses 16 and 17? It's where Saul said, it's not my fault, it's their fault. I can't be held accountable for this. Let's just pretend like nothing happened. David comes to God again. David sees the plague coming on his people. And David says to God, it's not their fault, it's my fault. Don't kill them, kill me. I'm the shepherd, they're the sheep. Don't punish them for what I have done wrong. And what does God say to that prayer? God, David says to God, don't kill them, kill me. Don't bring the plague on them, bring the plague on me. And God says, no, God doesn't kill David. David doesn't pay with his life for his own sin. Instead, God says, make an altar offer a sacrifice. And so he does. And again, let's give David credit. He could have gotten out of this. The guy who owns the land is offering to give it to him. He's offering to give him the land, the sacrifice, the altar, everything. David could now push this off again. He could pull a King Saul. He could push it and deflect it, make it somebody else's problem. But he doesn't do that. Again, he's not like Saul. He accepts responsibilities. Like, this is my fault. I will pay for this. I need to do this. And so he does. He builds an altar. He sacrifices an animal. It's burned up as a burnt offering. And then God says to the the angel, put away your sword. You know, the angel's just standing there. The, The angel of God who brings this plague of death, he's just standing there over Jerusalem. Nothing's happening. He's just waiting. David makes a sacrifice and God says, put away your sword. And the plague stops, we're told. Why? Why does David killing a bull and burning it up stop justice? If God is just, if everything must be punished, what, is God just letting him off? Is God just saying, well, okay, fine, you did wrong, but will, is is God acting like King Saul? We'll just ignore it and pretend like nothing happens. No, again, God is not stopping justice. He's delaying it. He's pushing it off. God pushed justice off a thousand years What does David say to God? Don't punish them, punish me. Who does that sound like? David is called a man after God's own heart, even though he does terrible things, terrible things. He he is a murderer, he's an adulterer. The second half of his life is mostly a train wreck. It's mostly stories like this. He does terrible, horrible things. And yet he's called a man after God's own heart. And here I think you see it. We talked last week, a couple weeks ago, how Aaron looks like Jesus because he runs towards the plague to make atonement. David sounds like Jesus. Don't punish them, punish me. That's what David says to God. Don't punish them, punish me. God says to David, no. A thousand years later, Jesus will say the same thing to God. Don't punish them, punish me. And God will say yes. Do you remember what Jesus says on the cross? Father, forgive them. And then do you remember his last words before he dies? We translate it, it is finished. But lots of words mean finished. I mean, there's lots of synonyms. Finished, done, completed, accomplished. There's a lot. What does, when Jesus says it is finished, what does it mean? It means it is paid. David says, don't make them pay. I'll pay. 
And God says, no. Jesus says, don't make them pay. I'll pay. And God says, okay. And he does. He pays. Those are his final words. It is paid. And then he dies. God pushes justice. Justice that should have happened to David, that should have happened to his people. God pushes it off a thousand years until Jesus. That's what Paul will say in the book of Romans. God leaves the sin committed before Christ unpunished so that he doesn't have to punish David for his sin. He doesn't have to punish Abraham for his sin. He doesn't have to punish Moses for his sin. Jesus can pay for all of that. God's justice comes upon them. But in the end, it is stayed. It is delayed. It's pushed off. David knows it's his fault. He knows he should pay. He asks for it. But God says no. And we know why. Because we have the rest of the story. We know what's going to happen. Church, you always have these two choices. You always have the choice to be King Saul or to be King David. Every time you are confronted with the fact that you have messed up. And I mean, sure, the big mess ups, the ones where you go to prison, the ones where you ruin people's lives, you ruin your own life. Like the big mess ups, you have that choice. And all the tiny little ones too. All the times that you know you were selfish. All the times you know you should have spoken, but you didn't. And all the times you know you should have kept your mouth shut, but you didn't. All the times you know that you're supposed to put other people's needs right up there with your own, but you don't. You're just concerned about yourself. You're tired. You're hungry. You're annoyed. You're frustrated. All the times when you are confronted with the fact that like Saul, like David, like everyone who's ever lived other than Jesus, you mess up. You got to choose who you're going to be. You got to choose whether you're going to be King Saul and you're going to deny it and you're going to deflect it and you're going to ignore it and you're going to minimize it and you're going to excuse it and you're never going to deal with it. Because remember, in that story, he never does. Or you're going to be David. You're going to be upfront. I did it. This is my fault. I've been foolish. Please forgive me. That's what David says. I've sinned. I've been a fool. Please forgive me. Because the scriptures tell us over and over and over again that because of the death of Christ, the answer to the question of will you please forgive me is always yes. Always yes. Now that doesn't mean there are no consequences, but you are always offered forgiveness. If you are not a follower of Christ, you are offered forgiveness. You're always offered forgiveness. You were offered forgiveness at Easter. You're offered forgiveness now for every moment that you live. That offer is on the table. If you get it, if you get that, that you've messed up, again, maybe it's the go-to-jail mess up, maybe it's the simple, selfish, lazy mess up. If you realize that that's true, that you're not living the way you're supposed to, you are not loving and kind and unselfish all the time the way you are supposed to be, and you say to Jesus, Jesus, I'm sorry, I did that. Please forgive me. The answer is yes. He will gladly take care of that for you. He will gladly make you his. And if you are his, you know, whether you just did that 30 seconds ago, he can hear you in your mind if you say that to him, or you've been his for decades, then remember, Satan rose up 
against Israel. You have an enemy who wants to harm you. He's going to lie to you and tell you that your sin doesn't matter. It's not a big deal. It's not hurting anyone. And hey, you can always ask for forgiveness. There won't be any consequences. Those are lies. Don't believe them. If you are Christ's, then whenever you realize that you've done what every human being other than Jesus does every day, we're not living up to what God has told us. We're not loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're not loving our neighbor as ourself. When you realize that, then be like David. Come to him. Say, yes, Lord, I, I did this. It's me. We do that in the beginning with Jesus, when we become his followers to become Christians, but we need to keep doing that. We're already forgiven. That's not the issue. The issue is being like David, having a heart like David, understanding what Jesus has done for us. You are faced with that choice every single day. Am I gonna be Saul or am I gonna be David? Saul ends terribly and David is called a man after God's own heart. Though, again, he has just as many train wrecks in his life as Saul does. We are all dreadfully sinful. King David was dreadfully, dreadfully sinful. And I love that the Bible shows us that. It doesn't hide any of that from us. But David said, please forgive me. And he received that from God. And Saul never said it. So he never did. If you've never asked for that, then today's a good day to ask. The answer is always yes. And if you asked for that decades ago, you still need to choose to be like David every day. You still need to do what scripture tells us, to confess our sins, to come to him. We're already forgiven. We're doing this for us so that we become more like Jesus, more like David who looks like Jesus. So pray with me. Oh Lord, I have known you for decades, and yet I still recognize that, that I, I mess up all the time. That not a day has gone by in my life when I haven't been selfish somewhere, unloving somewhere, unkind, lazy, though you have saved me. So you have forgiven all of my sin, past, present, and future. I still have it. I still do it. I still know the truth of what John says in 1 John. If we say we don't sin, oh, we are lying and we're making you out to be a liar. Lord, help us to be like David. I pray for anybody that has never trusted you, that they will trust you, that they will say to you, yes, I, I, I get it. Please forgive me. Jesus, I believe that you died to do exactly what you said, to pay for this. It is paid. Forgive them, Father. It is paid. And he will gladly, happily, joyfully, Scripture says. And I pray for all of us who have known you for, for five minutes or for 50 years. That Holy Spirit, you would be at work in us. You would keep our hearts soft towards sin. You would make us people like David, that, that when we see it, boy, we come immediately to you. We repent. We ask for forgiveness. We never act like King Saul. Make us people who look like David, because David looked like you, Jesus. We pray this in your name, always in your name, Lord. Amen.